this farm-raised, grass-fed It's on the record and off the wall Cold-pressed, unstressed Non-GMO, no cholesterol Organic and cage-free Certainly not PC We share the backstory and that ain't all It's always on the record Sometimes off the wall Hi everybody and welcome once again to on the record and off the wall a jolt radio interview show today with a living comedic legend laughter is the only answer with eight, eight decades in show business woody woodbury has produced 10 successful comedy albums appeared in movies television shows and personal appearances with a series of long-running live comedy shows and a career in the military training jet pilots and making them laugh too. Woody, how are you today? Welcome to Hi. the show. Thank you for uh, your, your your call here. I just hope this thing just works the way you want it to. Well, That's I'm... a great introduction, more than I deserve. Oh, no, 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 no. You deserve a lot more than that. You you are a living legend, and people refer to you as a living uh, legend. What do you think about that? Well, I think I'm very close to 100 years in age, and, and uh, uh, almost everybody in comedy and out of comedy that I knew has gone heavenward, and uh, for some reason, I'm still here, yet I feel pretty darn good. I've had a couple of minor health issues, but Nothing that serious, so I have no complaint. I'm lucky to be here, and I still get around. I, you know, I have no problem with uh, anything. My, I have a little vision problem. I have a little hearing problem. About anything that comes with old age, I somehow got a hold of some of it. But yeah. I, got, I have no complaints, Buzz. It's, I, I'm a lucky guy, and 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 I know it. The, the military. I went through some horrific times in the Marine Corps, but uh, in, in combat, but. I don't know. I'm just I'm just lucky. That's all. You are lucky, and we're lucky to have you. Uh, so let's let's talk about the early years. You were born in St. Paul, Minnesota. Right. Uh huh. Um, one of four siblings. Yeah, I had three sisters. Three sisters. What was it like growing up? Were they older sisters? No, one was older. Two, the two were younger, and I spoiled them rotten. I let them do things like you know, do the dishes. I let them vacuum. I let, I, 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 I allowed them to, to do the dusting and, and uh, all, all that sort of thing. I was domestically, I was magnificent because I, I allowed and permitted the girls to do all that stuff. Now you had an early interest in music. Uh, uh -huh. Was it a musical yeah. family you grew up in? Uh, my mother was a. Uh, she was. Uh, she played concert piano, but uh, she never. When she got married, when she married my dad, I mean that was the kind of the end of her career. She did it uh, maybe for a year or two after they were married, but she was very. She was an excellent pianist. She was really, really good, and and she got. She. I was very young at the time, and we had an upright piano, and she got me interested in in it. That and and so that's how I learned how to play the piano. You know, my mother, she was a good teacher, and then when she got so busy with the girls and everything else, and she hired a, a German uh, teacher, I'll never forget his name, it was Wirth, W-I-R-T-H. He was a German immigrant. He came over here, and he settled in St. Paul because he was run out of Germany because he was Jewish. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, uh, and he, he would, he, he would, it was sometimes... 
and he would be homesick, and he would say, you know, I come to this country. You know, he talks with his with his broken English, so sure. to speak. But he was just a great guy. But he would say, they come the the uh, what did he call him the the uh, the Hun? I think he called him the Hun or something like that. Oh yeah. English. Meaning the the uh, the uh, Germans, they come they come my my music store my piano store. They come in they break all my piano. They tell me you get out or we kill you. You you don't you don't belong here and all. And he says and so. I go. He says I leave my family and I come to America. I mean that's the most that I can remember. And you don't understand at this time I was a little guy. Yeah. This is prior to World War. Two, this was probably this was in the in the late thirties mm-hmm. uh, at, at that time. But uh, now at he that, was, at, he was a wonderful. He just was a wonderful guy, and then uh, he kept me as a, as a student for I guess maybe two or three years, and then uh, he had a family situation, and he had to move out of St. Paul, and then I lost all track of my wooden he was an old man when he was teaching me so i imagine he's long since gone to his maker yeah but he was a wonderful man and my mother she was in awe of the way he played the piano because he had huge hands and he like a huge an octave is eight is eight keys you know yeah and this man could reach like 12 13 keys he had huge hands and he was a very good musician and he loved the pla- uh, he loved the classics, and he didn't mind. Uh, one thing I remember, he liked Western music, but he didn't care for he didn't care for the swing. He like the my idols in those days, you know, were Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey and Glenn Miller and people like that. He didn't care for that kind of music, but he liked the guitar music of the Roy Rogers and the, the early cowboy uh, singers. So, yeah, so yeah. you had you had uh, a a ten piece orchestra um, yeah. early in life. Um, yeah. How did that happen? It was before you even reached your teens. What, yeah, well, that... uh, there were some kids in school, and they liked to play. And I know this: we must have sounded awful because <laughs> they. Uh, my father was uh, at that time in his life was sort of active in in the. Uh, Boy Scout movement. He he was not a scoutmaster, but he was on the board of uh, the uh, the national board, and somehow he made arrangements for this so-called orchestra of mine to play at the Minnesota State Fair in the agricultural building, which was a huge hangar. So you, you were got, in there with all the cows and horses, and yeah, yeah. Well, it was actually it was more uh, it, it was more produce. It was an ah. agricultural, uh, they had booths all around, but they had us in the middle of this auditorium, and there there was nine or eight, nine or ten of us, whoever could make it, and we would get over there after school, and we this was during fair week, and we must have sounded terrible, and the echo throughout that, I, 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 now I can look back in retrospect, those people must have just retreated and were tone deaf, for the time they left the building, because everything we played was loud, and it, it would reverberate throughout these. This huge hangar it was a big, empty hangar, except for the booths around the little booths 
all around the perimeter. Well, wasn't that dangerous for you, Woody, because they had access to fruit which they could throw at the band? This didn't <laughs> happen, though, did it? No, I'm certainly glad you brought it up now because it... <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have gone on stage at that point back, back in the day if you knew that was going to happen. Yeah, can you imagine so, getting, killed, getting killed by a watermelon? <laughs> oh, my God. That, that's a career ender. So, yeah. University of Miami, you wanted to go there for journalism. You wanted to be a journalism major. That was in January of 42, but the war happened. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I graduated high school in June of 41 and uh, went right to the University of Minnesota within a week after school and registered, and I was going to start there in, uh, I think, this, the season or the the, the the next, semester? Yeah, the, the next semester started either, I think in January or February 1942. Well, Pearl Harbor happened December 1, 41, the end of December. And uh, and I had already registered at the University of Minnesota, and I was going to be a J student and all this good stuff. And this war just disrupted, just upset everything, you know, just had the older people like crazy and and of course, we're, I, we're young, and I didn't know anything about anything, and I'm just going along with it. But all of a sudden, all everybody, my kid buddies from high school, they were all going in the Army and the Navy, because all of a sudden, the, the Japanese were our bitter, bitter enemy, and we never, our nation never had it like that, anything that severe. So I went right in the Marine Corps. I went in the Marine Corps, I went down there in January, a couple of weeks later, and they said, come back. They were overloaded with prospects, so to speak. So I went in there, and in February, I got uh, checked into the Marine Corps, the Wold Chamberlain Airport in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is now the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. But at that time, it was just a, uh, it was a municipal airport with a, with a Navy attachment so you uh, went, and then you went to Pensacola, where you graduated flight school in the Marines. Uh, well, uh, yeah. Prior to that, uh, I had to go through the pre-flight training, which was in uh, first I went to St. Louis, then Athens, Georgia, then uh, Millington, which is Memphis, Tennessee, and then uh, after Millington, I Whiting Field in Pensacola, and then Mainside, and then I got my I got my wings. Uh, uh, you, you got your wings, and then and then you started playing piano for all your squad mates, yes, and and I, and boosting that morale because you knew that everybody was going to, flying. All your buddies would be going into a real uh, combat uh, shooting experience in in right? war. And, I figured and, that I'd be going with them, Buzz. I figured that that I'd be right along with them. But playing the piano. In a way, it was a, a, a good thing, but another way it really sort of ticked me off because the guys that I flew with, I was student pilots with, I graduated flight school in Pensacola, and all, the, all that stuff, a lot of those, they were deployed overseas on kind of that darn piano. They kept me, and then I had flown prior to World War II. I had flown when I was 14 years old in a, in a homemade airplane. I almost killed myself. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's another story. I, oh. I, I, I don't even really want to shoot him. Woody, a homemade airplane. You were 14. No, I didn't. It wasn't my airplane. It was, <laughs> it, was a, it, it belonged to a guy, and I, I was taken. I was 
swept away with, with airplanes. I was mm. an airplane because I had an uncle who was a World War One Navy pilot. And there weren't too many Navy, World War One Navy pilots, but my uncle Warren, my dad's brother, was one. And uh, he would tell me about uh, airplanes and everything else. And I was, a, there was a radio show on Buzz called Jimmy Allen is on the radio. There was no television in those days. Yeah. Jimmy Allen, I used to be, be glued to that radio every every day. I come home from school, and the first thing I do is glue myself to that Jimmy Allen show, and it was daredevil stuff, and I could picture myself doing this and everything else. And then I met this, I, I was ride, out riding my bike one day with my buddy on a Saturday, and we heard this noise, and we we're way out in the county road north of St. Paul, way out in the sticks, heard this roar, and come down the road to play and we went into a driveway and here's this guy with this airplane with the engine running he's got the tail of the airplane strapped to a 55 gallon drum and it's, the airplane has no wings on it and he was breaking the engine in and that was the roar that brought us there and anyhow I met the guy and I would go back there every weekend and he tolerated me. He didn't at first, but he was hard to get along. He was a World War One veteran and he was an aviator himself. And it was a very brief interview, but I spent about five or six or eight weekends uh, at, at this guy's place. And uh, he got to trust me and I, and I would sit in the cockpit and I would do this for him and that for him while he's working on the engine and doing this and then Anyhow, now, now uh, that guy, that guy yeah. probably was taught by Glenn like, Curtis, the aviation pioneer, because he taught uh, over ninety percent of the U.S. pilots in World uh, War One. No, well, this guy, this I learned, I learned about flying from the Jimmy Allen radio thing, and I would buy everything that they had for sale. Send in a box top. I forget whether it was cornflakes or something. I would get the ring, and I would get the how to. Take care of yourself in a spin in an airplane and all kinds of stuff like that. And and I was just a kid, you know, but I was just enamored of aviation. To make a long story very short, uh, I wound up taxiing his airplane because he trusted me. He wasn't there. I taxied the airplane and uh, I got sort of a smart aleck and I got it off the ground and I, and I put it right back down on the ground. I don't think I was eight feet off the air. I must have looked like one of the Wright brothers. Uh. And I couldn't couldn't get it stopped. And I ran into a fence at the end and it was sudden stoppage and oh boy, oh boy. And I nosed up and uh, that was the only spill I ever had in an airplane. It wasn't a bad thing, but it did break because all propellers back in those days were made of wood. And yeah. It broke the propeller, and it was called sudden in sudden stoppage of the engine, and and uh, well, at least it was very close to the ground. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was, now, but, now, Woody, let me ask you about uh, something that I'd heard, and I don't know if it's true or not. That one of your wingmen was Ted Williams, the baseball player. Oh yeah, that was yeah. I I flew with Ted in World War Two, and uh, also in Korea, and he was actually he was a terrific guy. He was I mean. He, he was not standoffish. I mean, I've heard, I've read things by by, by guys and, who really didn't know him, and uh, he would not mix with the other pilots. Never, that's all bull. He ate with us in the mess halls, and, and we, we flew combat together. We went in briefing. We came back and went through debriefing. I went duck hunting with him, and Eddie Buxer was my roommate. We lived in Japanese huts in Korea, and. Uh, 
Japan and Korea had a war prior to World War II, and the Japanese beat the heck out of the Koreans. There were no North and South Korea. It was all Korea back right. in those days. And they disarmed the Koreans. They took all their arms away from them. I mean, you know, Korea is like China in one respect, and like Japan and all a lot of Asian countries. People live on rice, but people aren't the only creatures who live on rice. They have these rice paddies in all these Oriental countries, and the birds, because all the all the ammunition and all the firearms were taken away from the Japanese when they lost the war, the ducks and the geese and the birds, nobody could harm them any longer. They couldn't kill them off, and there was millions of them and with these rice paddies. These birds got to be weighed to 25, 30 big, big ducks. They could hardly, hardly fly. Well, they got they fat would, on rice. Yeah, they eat, eat. That's all they did. And nobody was there to stop them. The, the, the farmers, the Japanese farmers, would go out and shoot them away. And 15 <laughs> minutes later, they're back, you know. And then, anyhow, to make a long story very brief, yeah. uh, I would go with Ted Williams, and he said, whatever you do, don't let one of those beauties fall on you because it would kill you. And boy, you have 40, 40 pounds of, of uh, anything hits you from the air and you're, you're, you'll be killed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyhow. Uh, anyhow, so you, you, you successfully came back from uh, uh, the Korean uh, conflict. Uh, but yeah. at, at that time, you're, you, had a, you had your first professional gig back in 1946. Uh, yeah, that and, and, was... Uh, uh, that was in, uh, actually it was in... Uh, was that Daytona? No, it was in, actually it was in Los Angeles, a little place called Salis. There was a man named Salvatore Santa Ella. Santa Ella is the way it's spelled. S-A-N-T-A-E-L-L-A, Santa Ella. He was a Mexican man, and he had a nightclub called Salis on La Cienega Boulevard. And uh, we would go in there. We would come up from El Toro. I was stationed at El Toro at this point, at this juncture, I was still in the Marine Corps, and we would moonlight. I would moonlight, what they call moonlight, you know. Yeah. I was uh, I was flying Corsairs, instructing in Corsairs at El Toro down near Santa Ana, Laguna Beach. To make a long story brief again, uh, we go up to the weekends, and uh, <laughs> he asked me to play the piano one night because Salvatore, he played, Sally himself, he played the piano. And he liked American Boogie Boogie, which was very popular in World War II. And I could play Boogie Boogie, you know, because it was a fad of everybody. And I was pretty good at Boogie Boogie. And we and he had two pianos there, back to back, side, you know, next to each other. So we did a couple of duets, and the audience liked it. And then he said, I want you to come up here every weekend. I said, I can every weekend. He said, well, you come up here, and I pay you $90. Which was a lot of money. Wow. That, yeah. At that time, yes. So I would go up there for, oh, maybe 10 or 12, maybe even 15 weekends. And I'd go up there and play the piano and talk with everybody. And I met I met people in the, in the movie business who were nobody. Uh, and later later became huge stars. You know, they were, they were big. But at the time, they were like bit players and they had just gotten out of the service and Bill Holden was one of them. And, uh, no, nobody, knew. Bill Holden was, he was just a kid who hung around the bar and he was looking to do parts in movies cause he was a good looking guy and all this kind of stuff. But, uh, he, he was just one of the guys. And I just bring that up because 
say I've been lucky to, and I bumped into these kind of people all my life. Anyway, but that was my first job at La Cienega. Ah. And then I, yeah, and then I went to uh, Daytona Beach, where where I had uh, instructed fighter pilots, uh, taught them how to fly fighter planes in in Daytona Beach. That was uh, the, the the first, really the first year year and a half of the war. And yeah, it was successful I, I, because no one had invaded Daytona Beach after that. That's right. I kept him away single-handedly. Thank goodness. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so you uh, you you were in Florida, but not uh, in uh, not in Fort Lauderdale. Okay, this was later. This was like late fifties, early sixties. But tell us about when you first uh, were were trying out for this job that uh, Johnny Carson was going to leave for uh, the the nighttime. Uh, uh, yeah, he was doing a show in, in New York. Uh, I had I had uh, I, I had made some uh, comedy records. There was a man named Fletcher Smith. Uh, and you, when you were a little boy, when I was a little boy, there were movies like Mutiny on the Bounty with Charles Lawton and Clark Gable. There were uh, Errol Flynn and Captain Blood and some of those swashbuckling movies. Uh, and all of those battleship scenes because you can't kill humans, all those battleship scenes were shot in miniature. And a man named Fletcher Smith had a studio in New York, and he, I think he was on the fourth or fifth floor. I think he was on like a 37th and 5th Avenue, 37th and Broadway. I'm not quite sure, Street. And he had a, the whole floor, uh, he, he had it like waterproof, soundproof, whatever. And he had almost the whole floor was filled with three feet, four feet of water, three feet of water. And he had background uh, silhouettes made, and he had little tiny firecrackers and little to scale little vessels. And you know when they make the movies, but all those battleship scenes, the cannons going off and all this kind of stuff, that was all done in miniature. And Fletcher Smith Studios, he, he was the guy who did it. He had contracts. With Paramount, with MGM, with Warner Brothers, Republic, Columbia, all the picture business people. And how and he, did Fletcher? Was, how did Fletcher come into your life uh, to uh, to to work with you? I was at the Bahama Hotel. Sonny Sonny Warbland was my agent, and Sonny and I was at the Clover Club in Miami. And then Sonny Warbland, uh, he said to me, "I want you to go to." Fort Lauderdale, you'll have a great time, and they're going to pay you more money than, than you're getting at the Clover Club. And I said, hey, I was through Lauderdale. They got an Italian restaurant and a gasoline station. There's nobody there. <laughs> and he said, don't worry. He says that's going to be the common place at Fort Lauderdale. And I must say this, Buzz, the man was right. He was right. I mean, I was lucky to be at the Clover Club because Jack Goldman was the best boss I guess I ever had. He was terrific. And uh, I can tell you a couple of stories about him that's unbelievable. But he would sit there at night. The people that came into the Clover Club, customers as well as the stars from that era, he used to sit in a corner booth with, of all people, Howard Hughes. That's a true story. He and Howard Hughes, for however it happened, I don't know, but they were great friends. And Howard Hughes would come to Miami, spend time with Jack and Louise Goldman. But he was just a hell of a guy, that's all. Anyhow, I was at the Clover Club, and Sonny said, uh, uh, I want you to go to uh, 
Fort Lauderdale, and I went through that rigmarole I just said, but he says, you like it. So I went up there, and he was right. It was everything, everything happened to me, and the the, the, the reason it started with uh, the Fletcher Smith Studios and everything else was, he came to me, he said, I want you to make, uh, I, I want to record you. And I said, the jokes I tell? I said, are you kidding me? And I I didn't know who the man was. And I said, I, I, you know, I said, you're nuts. That's what I said to him. Said, Did this well, lead to it. the first comedy album? Yeah, yeah. So I wind up making nine of them. And, uh, now, the first and album, I, that was a gold album, right? Yeah, the first the first three were gold albums. And uh, anyhow, uh, I just got lucky with it, and they took off. And then the fact the fact that Ralph Edwards, uh, he had heard the records, uh, one of the records I made, and he asked me to come out to California, and I said, I can, I'm, I'm working here in Fort Lauderdale. I'm booked. He, yeah, yeah, he said, well, I'll come there. So Ralph and Barbara Edwards, and he had a, a television show called uh, This Is Your Life, yes. and he had another called Truth or Consequences. Yes. And, uh, and he, Ralph was a heck of a, a producer, and he was had a lot of moxie. He knew, uh, he knew the business. So he started a, he, he flew me out to California. I got permission from the boss at the Clover Club or something like that. So I go to California with Ralph Edwards and uh, he had a show. Uh, uh, he did a, anyhow, it was called the Woody Woodbury Show. It was a precursor to the Merv Griffin Show. Ralph Edwards started that show and I was his, the first host on the show. And uh, it got a lot of coverage in L.A. I can I was really embarrassed. I'd be riding along with my wife, Sue, at the time, and I'd see a bus, buzz across the bus, the new Woody Woodbury show in great big letters, like you see the buses locally here with big advertising on it. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, that's me. And I couldn't get over that. Anyhow. Now, it was it a local out, show in that local market at the time, L.A. market. Yeah, but uh, actually, he went... Uh, he, he didn't go to the networks. He went to, uh, oh, what was his name? Independent guy. He went to, uh, I can't think of his name, but cable network was just, cable news, cable networks were just trying to burden, but they were called UHF stations, if you recall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we went to uh, a lot of those cable stations, and uh, the show took off for some reason. All I was was the host. Yeah. He knew everybody in Hollywood, and he would have Diana Doors. He would have he even had Eddie Rickenbacker on there. He had people. That, it was unbelievable the people that, and they didn't tape a one. They didn't tape the shows. They were live. They taped the shows, but then what they do is just like you did with your when you had a little sound recorder. Yeah. You 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 tape the cassette and you get tired of what was on it, and you tape right over it. You know. Right, they'd uh, they would erase the tapes and and that's right. Yeah, that's exactly what Ralph did to conserve tapes. So at this time, you were you were doing a successful afternoon interview show, yeah. and uh, it, it after that, um, as as a result of that and your records, yeah, uh, yeah someone said, "Hey, let's put him in a movie." Yeah, <laughs> that yeah, was that, well, early sixties, and and at yeah, the time you were playing have, in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, I had a great fan. I had a great fan. I didn't know it at the time, but Frank Sinatra backed that that one that one picture. I mean, and I think the reason he backed it is I had met him, and he was really a nice guy. 
and uh, his daughter Nancy, it was her first movie. Dean had a daughter, and Claudia Martin, it was her first movie. And it was one of the, was the, the first of those beach pictures, you know, it was called For Those Who Think Young. Yes. And, uh, and the girl I played opposite in that movie, and uh, 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 her name was Ellen McRae. And a few years later, she changed her last name to Burston, and she won the Academy Award, Ellen Burston. Yeah. So I was... I was in pretty high cotton and pretty, pretty heady company. I'll tell you. I, you were working with some cool people. Oh, Buzz! I was so lucky. I, everything fell in for me. I mean, I and I didn't, I didn't solicit any of it. It's just that the guys wanted me to do these things, and I, I did them, and they set it up to make it nice for me. And everything, everything was. It just was so great. Going back to Korea for the war in Korea. Yeah. The, the highlight for me in Korea. Uh, one of the fright, most frightening things I ever went through was I was with Ted Williams. I mean, we flew separate airplanes. We flew fighter planes, and there was only one one per one aviator. We were our own navigators. We were our own, you know. There was only one one of us in each airplane. But I was with Ted the day he got shot down. It was February the sixteenth, nineteen fifty-two. I will never forget that day. I was and over Korea. Yeah, in Korea. And we were way up at Yangtok, way up near the Manchurian border, the Chinese border. Mm. Anyhow, uh, he didn't know where he was. He got really banged up. He was still in the air, but he had nothing except his engine. He had no flaps. He had no landing gear. He had no radio. He had no oxygen. He had nothing. Only his engine, for some reason, kept going. And I got on this wing, and, and with hand signals, he was headed right into Manchuria, almost at the at the uh, Yellow River. And I got him turned around, and he followed me, and I got him turned around and headed towards the Yellow Sea. And now I'm getting very low on fuel, and so I, uh, I didn't know what to do, and because I, 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 I wind up landing in North Korea myself, and I didn't want to do that. And anyhow, I got him headed around, and then another one of my squadron buddies, he found us, and he had he had uh, a, a lot of fuel left. So then he's the one who, who brought Ted all the way back. But through that ground fire and that smoke and that debris that was flying through the air, it was a, the most frightening time of my entire life in, in, in when it comes to aviation. It was worse than flying through ACAC. And, of course, we were taking ACAC then, too, anti-aircraft. But anyhow, to make a long story short, there again, I was just plain lucky. We got Ted back, and he landed uh, safely. And there was nothing left of his airplane except the engine. He come across that fence. Must have been going about 260, 280 knots across that fence. And he landed on the runway, and the sparks flew up. It looked like the 4th of July at the tail end of his airplane. And boy, I tell you, when the airplane came to a stop, it slid off the runway onto the dirt. You should have seen that kid come out of that airplane. That big, you know, Ted was a big guy. Yeah. He come out of that cockpit of that airplane. <laughs> he took off running. It was amazing to see. And they had made they had made all of us land ahead. Uh, and uh, uh, Skip was the, the pilot who brought him back. I mean, Hawk, Larry Hawkins is, is the boy who took my place because he had a lot of gasoline. Larry Hawkins is the guy who brought him back. Larry, by the way, he just passed away about, I'm um, say, a year ago now. 
and he lived right up here in uh, Orlando, and he was 95 years, maybe 94, and he just passed away. But he's the one that really brought Ted back. I know I'm jumping from one thing to another here, but you get me going on one subject, and wow. Oh, that, that's a great story. That's a great story, Woody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it was, uh, it was, uh, it, but there again, uh, I said it was the luck factor, you know, it's just, uh, everything always turned out good for me and it still does. I mean, that's why I can't complain about this things that go with age, you know. You know, it, so, it, it, it's, uh, it's one thing when you get up on a stage in front of an audience and you know this better than anybody, all the ills, all the pains, they seem to, 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 to diminish. They seem to go away. And you're, you're right. doing your act, yeah. and you've got that. You've got the uh, the input from the audience, and you're doing your act. And and after it's all over, and then you you come down, and then you maybe start feeling a little bit of those things again. Um, but we're, we're we're and you have been working uh, until uh, this year. You're 96 now. Yeah, yeah, almost on, on, until this year. You you were still working. Now I've only doing I'm only doing a couple of shows a year now. I mean, I do I do Hunter, which is the the the, the uh, organization that Benjamin Franklin started back in seventeen hundred. Did you know Benjamin? Oh yeah, we went to school together. Oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that would make uh, you about two hundred and twelve years old today, wouldn't it? I... It was a great. Uh, it, it's a great outfit, Hunter, and it's very. You know, you have to be invited to join and. And uh, it's, it's just, it's a great, it's a philanthropic type thing. And then I do the 100 Club every year. And the 100 Club is nationwide and also in Canada. It's in every city, major city. And it's the um, the proceeds from the donors to the 100 Club takes care, take care of the widows and the children, the police officers and fire firemen who are, are killed in the line of duty. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Is. Yeah, well, that's across. The, you know, there's a hundred club in Miami. There's a hundred club, I'm sure, in Hollywood, Florida. There's a hundred club in Chicago, New York, Denver. You, there's a hundred club. It's, it's, and it's always, it's always a, the lawyers, the bankers, and the, the leaders, and in, 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 you know, business moguls or heads of corporations. That's that's what the hundred club is. It's kind of you know, call them high end guys or something like that. Yeah, they're philanthropic type guys, and they make their companies donate, and they look after the widows and and the the kids of police officers who have lost their lives. You know. Well, that's great that you're st you're still doing that, and you're still booked. Um, that's wonderful, and and uh, and a tribute to to you, and and I'm not going to say your age. But someone like you needs to perform, and you need that audience as well. Can yeah. you tell me about some of the uh, the big stars that you have worked with? Are there any background stories, any behind the scenes things that you'd like to talk about? Well, for I don't know. Uh, I, I I know so many of them, like Dale, cowboy actor Dale Robertson. He he did uh, uh, Tales of Wealth, Wells Fargo, and he did motion pictures. Yeah. And uh, uh, he and I were great friends, and we would go into Connecticut every year and play in the Sammy Davis. I got to know Sammy Davis pretty well. I got to know all those stars, the, the stage stars, 
who a lot, a lot of them did television, you know, and Davis was wonderful. And and I was lucky enough to meet Sinatra, and uh, I got to know him pretty well. Steve McQueen was another one I got to know, but I was on common ground with Steve because he was a Marine, and we talked the same language. And, uh-huh. Yeah, I was at Paramount, and uh, a guy came into Fort Lauderdale to, see, to watch me perform, and I didn't know who he was. And uh, somebody said, uh, there's a Mr. Koch. Yeah, he's in the audience, and, uh, and he wants to see you, or something like that. Tony, my maitre d', told me that. So I went and saw this guy, and he said, I'm Howard Koch. It's my wife, Ruth, and he had another couple with him. I don't know who. I think it was a Eugene Picker or somebody like that, one of the Picker family. And, uh, and uh, he says, I'm with Paramount. He says, and uh, that was the very beginning of that motion picture uh, for those who think young he came all the way to Fort Lauderdale because he'd heard me in one, one of these records and, and apparently had seen the Ralph Edwards thing and knew Don Federson very well and Don Federson had you know family affair with uh, Brian Keith and uh, there's young kids and anyhow <laughs> it's, everything happened in my life I've just been a lucky guy I've been you know, they say if you get the, you're at, at the right place at the right time, that's all that counts. And I would be at the right place and not even know it was the right place. I never knew it was going to happen. But you you gave it, you, you were having fun, Woody. And, yeah. and all the interaction you had with everybody at the clubs, uh, that's what the big draw was. It wasn't about just going out and having a drink, but to see you at the piano yeah. back well, and, and forth. It, yeah, because the audience became my show, you know. I mean, uh, I would tell a few stories. I, they're stock stories. You've heard them a hundred times. Yeah. And uh, tell jokes. And then I would get going with the audience, and I found that everybody has a sense of humor, even people who are very shy. And I found out secret little ways to bring 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 them out so they'll talk. You know, you could tell by the, usually by looking at someone's eyes that they don't want to be talked to. And those are the people I would sort of aim at, uh-huh. you know. And uh, and uh, all of a sudden, you can turn them around. Just you know, just be be a little bit patient, but do it in a comedic way. And the next thing you know, you can't shut them up. That's right. You make them laugh, and then they're going to listen, aren't they? <laughs> let, let me let me talk for for a moment about uh, some of the awards that you've gotten. Just lately, here in South Florida, uh, you uh, were given the Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, in Fort Lauderdale by the mayor, and a spot on the Fort Lauderdale Walk of Fame. It was Woody Woodbury Day. Yeah, uh, uh, in a couple of cities here in South Florida. Yeah, so, it was great. Yeah, Jacksonville was great, and uh, Daytona Beach was terrific. And Orlando's always been good to be. I've done shows up there, and, and uh, Tampa, Gully, St. Petersburg, Naples, Fort Myers. I've done shows all over Florida, and the audiences are just, you know, a lot of people that want to relax, number one. That's why they're down here. And uh, I don't know. I just, uh, I, I've just been booked so many places. Buzz, I worked every tank town in this, it seems like, the United States. You know, I've worked, you know, Bellflower, Utah. How's that for a town? I was there. Wow. <laughs> How many people in Bellflower? I, I'm going to look that I up. 
let's so, talk for let's talk for a moment about uh, the the Wednesday lunch bunch where I met you some oh, years yeah. back, uh, and these are guys uh, that are in the business: agents, composers, musicians, comedians. Yeah. And yeah. uh, all with the with the with the show business connection, and uh, and I I know yeah. that uh, it, we're not meeting live right now, but I know that when when you walked into the into the restaurant, and we have a big table with ten or twelve people sitting around the big big table, right. and everybody would say, "Well, here's Woody. The day is complete. How uh -huh. about some wisdom, Woody?" And uh, and everybody would look at you, and I, I think that you're the kind of um, the the titular head of the of the Wednesday lunch bunch, along with you know some of our favorite people. Oh, Jerry Grant for crying out loud, and Mark uh, and Mongo. Artie. Yeah, and uh, Artie Asner. Uh, uh, Errol Dante. Yeah, Errol. Errol Dante has been a hero of mine. Do you know that? I'm sure you know this. He used to sing that for the New York Yankees home games. He would sing the national anthem. I never knew that about him. He was he was their good luck charm. Yeah, I know it for the and national yeah. anthem. Yeah. Oh, he's a terrific guy. I, I all those guys are wonderful, and the ones that have passed. Gee whiz, it's you know I'm I don't think anybody. There's nobody there. Younger than myself now, I know I'm the senior old goat there. And the trouble is, I've had these little physical setbacks, and with the result that I have just not been able to get over there on Wednesdays. But I keep threatening I'm going to do it. Now I've just, you don't want to hear this, but I just came back from the doctors a little while ago, and it looks like I'm going to survive another month. Or oh, two thank or goodness. <laughs> No, I really feel pretty darn good. I just got a couple of little minor things, and, and uh, they just they knock me down for a day or two, and then I come back. You know, sometimes healthy, older people uh, have a good sense of humor as well. How do you think that's uh, added to your life stream here? I think I think, but I think it's the people people that I have met. Uh, and I've had so many people who are much, much more famous than I ever was or ever will be, and they have, all of them have said the same thing, and, and it's really true. A lot of them will tell you how lucky, sure, they worked hard, and I feel I worked hard, but I was also very lucky, but these people have told me, you don't know what luck is, buddy. You don't know what luck is. Like Howard Koch, I mentioned him. He coming down and flew all the way to Lauderdale. He later became president of Paramount Pictures, and he was my best friend out there. And uh, uh, we were close friends until he died. Uh, I don't know how to say it. It's just I, I I don't know. I guess it's my I can I get along well with everybody. I never. I never look to confront anybody about anything because we only live once and you might as well have a good time. That was my dad's outlook. Well, it, it's true because when you when you have fun and you want people to have fun with you yeah. and, you, and you don't make judgments and because you're, you're that type of a comedian that, that um, produces relevant material that people can understand and go to and laugh about 
And you're, you're, you're making fun of yourself as well. You know, any great comedian will put themselves into the, into the mix for that. And people yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, it really is the truth. It really is the truth. So, you know, i just been lucky. I keep reiterating, I keep saying that, and, and uh, there's so many, so many people that, that I got to know, Rosemarie, Jan Murray, the Vagabonds, Dick Hames, Rita Hayworth, Gully. Just gotten to know so many people. Uh, oh, God. And the worked comedian. with them. Worked, not, not just met them, but worked with them as well. Joey Lewis, I, who I thought was a great, great comic back in those days, and television was scared to death to put him on for Perry Be Too Blue. And I did when I did started that show. I told Ralph Edwards the show that became the Merv Griffin show. I says, I want to put Joey Lewis. He's a good friend of mine. He's very funny. Ralph says, Oh, don't you think he might be a little raw for tell? I says. The guy is so funny. He's he he just won't do his nightclub act. I I've seen him when he's done things for the for orphanages. Mm. And Ralph says, "Well, we'll give him a shot." And he was so good. And uh, uh, Marilyn Maxwell was on with us that night, and I think Debbie Reynolds was on the show with us. Anyhow, make a long story short, Joey Lewis and he, Ralph had a live audience in those days in the studio. He was so funny. They laughed so hard that for, for the first time in, this is live television, by the way, there was, there was no, you know, there's no taping in those days. It was so funny. They had him back the second night. He was so funny. Well, that's and, Joe, yeah. e, Joe E. Lewis, not Jerry Lewis. No, I said Joe E. Lewis. Joe, Joe E. Lewis. Yes. I, I want everybody to, to understand that because... Uh, it, this was his first big break on television uh, for a national audience as well. He had yeah. been on radio and doing live things, but yeah. he was a very well-known comedian as well. Oh, he was very, very popular, but uh, he died before his time as far as I'm concerned. I would, I would see him at, and, uh, when I was doing uh, the, 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 the old Johnny Carson daytime show. I'd land in New York every night at about 11 o'clock and the first place we go boom right off the bat we go to the uh, copa and uh joey lewis was working the copa in those days and uh and that's where errol dante was the uh featured uh singer yeah he was a house singer but i i never knew errol in those days i don't i don't i think he came along a little bit after that now i don't know that for sure but i think so uh because uh uh I'm trying to think of the girl that was a girl who worked there who became, oh, golly, I, I forget. Anyhow, the, 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 the people in the, in the Copa, uh, who's the crazy comic? Uh, hello, mother, hello, father. Uh, uh, he made the records. Uh, oh, he became such a good friend of mine. I can't even think of his name. Isn't that terrible? You know, who's the, 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 the Yes. He did the, yes. Hello. Yes. Hello. Um, hello. He sang the song "Hello, Mother." And he so talks about going to camp, and and uh, he's very clever. Anyhow, uh, it escapes me here. Uh, you know who I'm talking about? It's just it's right on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, I'll make a long story very brief. Alan Sherman. Alan Sherman. Alan and I we had such great times in New York, and Max. 
Kasner, he says, why don't you two get up there and do something, you know? Kasner's voice was like this, you know? I don't know if you know who he was. He owned the Copa. He'd get up there and do something like that. Boy, we got up there, and Alan gets into this stuff with the audience, and the, the absolutely, because he was a hot property. He was much hotter than I was. He was a hot property. His record albums were just terrific. They were so funny. Anyhow, he'd get out there on the floor, and then he got me out there, and the two of us acted like idiots just <laughs> telling stories back and forth. This is a Copa in New York. This was the Mecca. Yeah. And, and then I, later I, in the hotel room, I thought, what in the world was I doing on that? You were having of, fun. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, that didn't happen often, but when it did, it just you just go along with it, and I just had a good time with it. Well, he, you know, he, like you, uh, your humor and your comedy is not, uh, it's reflective of a, of a better time. It's reflective of, of, of the type of things that uh, people want to laugh at, as opposed to that, uh, the type of humor that, uh, that uh, brings people down, that's, uh, that's bad humor. I agree with well, a thousand percent with that. I agree. You know, laughter and fun is has nothing to do with religion, color, race, or politics. It's the uh, laughter is laughter, and and, and it, it's so easy to laugh. It's so easy to have a good time and to get caught up in, in these so-called worldly things that are nothing more than selfishness on the part of some people. That's all I that's the way I analyze it. Well, so in the beginning, you made a a, a, a decision to uh, to not go blue. Oh, I never, I never told, never on the floor. I, I hear all the stories. I mean, of some of the writers, you know, some of Jack Benny's writers. I knew Jack, uh, a couple of Jack Benny's writers very well, and of course, I know Seaman Jacobs and Danny Shapiro and all the guys who wrote for Bob Hope. And, and I lived in Toluca Lake, and Bob lived. Luca Lake and Bob lived right across the golf course from us, and so and I got to know all those people. But uh, I I made up my mind, and Fletcher knew it. And he, he when I made the record, I would never tell a race story, religious story, political story, because I saw what happened. In fact, who was it told me? Uh, I don't. I think it. Yeah, it might have been. Oh, I don't know. One of the guys says. All you got to do is go on the stage and say one thing that favors one political party over another, and you've lost half your audience. Sure. And and I'll never forget. Who was it told me that? A I'll, wise man. Yeah, yeah, it was a wise man. Too, yeah. And I, it was good advice. And I've seen it. And you have too. You've seen comics that have got off on this. Uh, political thing and it's ruined their lives it's ruined their careers and then they turn around and they get mad at the audience and they themselves are the one who brought it on themselves you know just like like what's going on today like the the, the the president whether you like him or not he fires these people because they're not loyal to him or whatever but all presidents have done that and it, these military guys and I was in the military for you know I did 16 years in the Marine Corps. Right. And, and uh, I never in my life saw or heard a general officer or a colonel or a high-ranking officer 
wax political. I've never heard him get into any kind of a political discussion. And now these general officers, they think they are the president. They, these guys think what they say because they're a general officer, they're above reproach. They can say anything because everybody's going to listen to them. And they're wrong about 90% of the time. That's the only thing I've noticed about policy. I don't get into politics. I stay as far away from it as I can. That's a good decision, Woody. Yeah. Yeah. And and race is another thing I don't get into. I work with Bill Cosby, and he told me a couple of stories that are so funny, yet they're racial. I'd love to have recorded them. He said, go ahead. People are going to love you for it. But I never did. At lunch one day, I'll tell you a couple of Bill Cosby's stories. Oh, that would be cool. Well, I know your sense of you. You will laugh your head off, not because I tell the story, but the fact the story is so funny. You know, they're just funny stories. But Cosby, he was terrific. Of course, you know, he went through this female problem and all that other stuff. But I knew him in the good days, and he was a wonderful guy. And to me, he still is. That's That's the way I look at him. Well, Woody, I you know it's 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 what a what a joy to to have you on uh, on my show on the record and off the wall here. Um, I, I want to uh, first uh, congratulate you and honor you for flying over a hundred missions uh, for the United States uh, during war. That that had to take uh, a special kind of nerve and. Uh, and, and uh, t- to be able to, to, to go there and do that. We, we will never know yeah, but what no, men no. go through and women go through when they're in those situations. Uh, you seem to have come out of it okay. Yeah. Uh, and, I, I, did, I, did, Buzz, I did no more than any other of the guys, you know. I mean, when I'm talking about combat uh, in the war. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I never tell anybody this. I belong to the Black Sheep Squadron, and uh, that was in World War II. I never told anybody about it because I was a flight instructor, and I taught the Black Sheep, some of the Black Sheep pilots who were, became real heroes. And I always, you know, I never said anything about it, but, you know, some of those guys I checked out in fighter planes, I, you know, and, I didn't and, know uh, that about you. Well, I don't ever. I don't. I don't. I probably shouldn't even brought it up because I. I never talk about it because uh, when you say you're the black, you're in the black sheep. You know, Pappy Boynton, Gregory Boynton's squadron. Yeah. And and right away people say, "Whoa, how many Jap planes did you shoot down?" I didn't shoot down any because I taught the guy how to fly. <laughs> I taught the guys how to shoot him down. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't teach them how to shoot them down, but I taught them to fly. To, to, uh, I checked them out in the in the fighter planes they flew. But well, I mean, I was the only one. There were some, you know, a lot of other guys too. I mean, don't misunderstand me. I don't, you know, I Carol Carol Bernard was one guy come out of New Iberia, Louisiana. He's a terrific guy, and uh, I was with him the day he got shot down, and I flew wing on him, getting him back to friendlies, and he's a Cajun. A very successful dentist following the war. But if you ever want to laugh your head off, get a Cajun in a tight situation and listen to his vocabulary. <laughs> you know what Cajun, real Cajun language is in, in, in Louisiana? It's absolute gibberish. You can't, 
have to understand a word, and you should have. He howled all the way back on the intercom to me. He said, Tell me, what is dirty mouth? You should make me. That's exactly what it sounded like. I listened to that for 12, 14 minutes getting back to friendlies. Wow. You know, I. I, 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 I certainly want to uh, thank you for being on the show today uh, and, uh, and look forward to, uh, to, to seeing you in person uh, again shortly when this okay. is all over. I, I appreciate your being uh, on the show here, on the record and off the wall. Woody, thank you so much. You're welcome, my friend. You're welcome. I hope I didn't overdo it, but I probably did. You have not, and I. Uh, this will be... Uh, I'll, I will be in touch when we stop recording, and uh, and, and tell you tell you all about how you can do that. But let's go to uh, to WoodyWoodbury.com. People want to know about uh, about your records, about your life, about all these different things. Go to WoodyWoodbury.com. That's your website. And you Woody, know, yeah, yeah. My my website now is uh, uh, WoodyWoodbury.net. Dot net. Ah, yeah. got it. Yeah, .net. All right. Yeah. Well, Woody, I love you, Woody. Thank you so much. Thanks you so much. I appreciate it, Buzz. You're welcome. Thank okay, you, everybody. Bye-bye. And uh, this is On the Record and Off the Wall. I'm Buzz Fleischman for Jolt Radio. See you next time. <laughs>